Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Richard Haas came out of Oberlin College of what I'm going to call the Eastern Midwest with the Council of Foreign Relations and their president. And all of that harkens back to a Midwest isolationism personified by Colonel McCormick at the Chicago Tribune a zillion years ago. Here is Haas writing in Foreign Affairs, and he is absolutely blistering. No other way to put it. There is a paradigm shift in the United States approach to the world. The new paradigm dismisses the core tenet of our 20th century approach that the United States has a vital stake in a broader global system. Ambassador Haas, are we all reading the Chicago Tribune? Are we going back to my grandfather's age? I wouldn't call it quite that extreme. The United States, under the last two administrations, both Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, has a fairly muscular policy towards China. So I wouldn't call it isolationism, but it's a narrowism. It's a domestic first. It doesn't particularly concern itself with building or even joining many international uh, arrangements or, or, or institutions. It really is a, a domestic first approach to the world. How do we minimize what we do in the world? Our Francine Lacroix interviewed Secretary Blinken in Paris in the last, I think, 48 hours. Are you, are you conflating Anthony Blinken with Rex Tillerson? <laughs> No, but this administration has been surprisingly maladroit in its diplomacy. You've got all these people who speak French fluently. You would have thought they could have picked up the phone several months ago and told the French, look, it doesn't make sense to sell these diesel submarines to Australia. They don't have the range. They're not sufficiently quiet. But we want to get you involved in Asia. We want to find a way to compensate you for the lost submarine sale. This ought to have been within the realm of doable diplomacy. It's what the Brits, Francine, would call an own goal. Richard, how significant is it that we're talking this morning about the fairy tale of Vladimir Putin coming to the rescue for the energy situation in the United Kingdom, in Europe more broadly? Does this signify the changing world regime? Well, what this signifies is that Vladimir Putin has played his, his limited cards very well, whether it's his nuclear, his conventional military, his cyber, obviously his, his, his energy. And he's, he's got outsized influence in Europe, and the Europeans have bought into it. Whether it's you know, with Nord Stream 2, the Germans, the Brits, they've not been strategic, and they've allowed themselves to become dependent. So today, Putin giveth. But tomorrow he could take it away. Well, but it's interesting that the likes of Germany, the biggest, most robust econ economy in the Euro region, is facing uh, increasing dependency not only on Vladimir Putin, but also on Xi Jinping at the time when the United States is actually having a serious issue with both nations. I'm wondering how much the reason for this is because of the increasing isolationism of the United States. Uh, I don't think so. I think it's more uh, European commercialism, a lack of a serious strategic culture, putting economics uh, first and almost uh, not taking a serious role in the world. It's particularly true of Germany under under Merkel. I know she's getting lots of you know positive things said about her. But the lack of a strategic approach to the world, I think, was, was remarkable. No, you're seeing similar things. What you're seeing in Germany, many parts of Europe, what you're seeing in the United States is a domestic firstism. We may change the label. 
table. Here, you know, they used to call it here America first. Yeah. Now we've got foreign policy for the middle class. But the, the myopia is pretty similar. Right. Uh, Richard Oss, I want to go back to foreign policy begins at home. And, of course, the movie was great, A World in Disarray. When you wrote A World in Disarray, you could not imagine the fiscal chaos. John Farrow was just describing the debt ceiling, the kicketh of the can down the road. How do we prosecute whatever foreign policy with our domestic front in such disarray? Look, the short answer is we can't do it well. The disarray means we're no longer a model that others respect or want to emulate. We're not predictable. We're not reliable. It raises fundamental questions for those, Tom, who are dependent upon us for, security, for, for their security. They look at us and they, they wonder, is that a, a, a wise choice? Let me give you, you mentioned some of my previous books. The book I'm writing now, Tom, is on what you're talking about. It's on America's domestic turmoil, on the threats to American democracy. I actually think the greatest threat to our standing in the world, to our standing at home, is not China or North Korea or Iran or Russia. It's ourselves. So foreign policy, you know, foreign policy does begin at home. It doesn't end there. It begins here. And right now, our base is, is extraordinarily weak. Well, then how does the moderate take the high ground? I mean, we're advantaged here, Richard Austin, that John Farrell looks at the zaniness of what we're dealing with here every day. It, you know, we, we look like we're on another planet. How do we rediscover the middle ground of American politics? If I had the answer to that, Tom, I'd, I'd put it out there and I, I, you know, I'd try to bring it about. I think you know, there's things we can do over time. A lot of talk about renewing civics education. Americans don't understand why democracy is valuable, what they have to do to, to make it. But we're also going to need some profiles and courage. Kennedy's book needs to find some new uh, people to live it. Like the Republican performance on the debt ceiling was really disappointing. The Mitt Romneys, the Rob Portmans. Why are these serious centrist Republicans? of following an irresponsible path. I do not understand it. Richard, how do you uh, talk about the idea of globalization as being a positive thing at a time when there are increasing supply chain disruptions, when you have some of the consequences of globalization still impeding a labor market, or at least that is the perception here in the United States? I mainly see globalization as a thing. It's both positive and negative, and the challenge is to push back against the negatives and take advantage of the positives. I think uh, trade is blamed for all sorts of problems, which are really about productivity increases, about technology innovation. People haven't done a, a good job of explaining it, but it, but that accounts for the fact that we don't have a trade policy. The head of the U.S. The US trade representative gave a speech the other day. It, it was essentially, it could have been given by a Trump administration official. Meanwhile, the United States is not doing anything to to reform the WTO. We're not participating in the principal trade agreement in the Asia-Pacific region. We are hurting American workers uh, across the board. We're hurting ourselves strategically. So we pay an, an, an incredible price for this rejection of, of, of globalization, quote-unquote. Richard, thank you, sir. As always, great to have you with us on the program. Richard Haas there, the Council on Foreign Relations President. An important interview now to summarize, and really we could spend an hour on this discussion with Nobar Afian of Moderna. It is Mode, M-O-D-E-R-N-A. He is co-founder and chairman and front and center worldwide with where we are with this terrific, uh, horrific, I should say, pandemic as well. Dr. Afian, thank you so much for joining us. I want to go back to Harold Edgerton in MIT. You have two degrees from MIT. You personify the excellence of biochemistry and bioengineering. What is next for you? Harold Edgerton 
always move forward in optics. How do you move forward after the 2020 you've had? Uh, well, uh, thanks for having me, and thanks for the kind words. It's a flattering uh, comparison to Dr. Edgerton, and uh, perhaps when I'm done doing what I'm doing, it might be more apt than now, where I've got a long way to go. But basically, as you may know, through my company, Flagship Pioneering, we have a platform through which we're able to make uh, innovations that might otherwise exist years from now, but bring them forward. And it's a process that we've followed for a number of years. We have a team of over 100 scientists, engineers to do this. And out of that have come multiple breakthrough platforms, Moderna being an important one, but several dozen others, which are working on some important problems in, in, in combating disease as well as mm -hmm. in, in allowing for more sustainable development in agriculture, et cetera. So right. a lot of problems left unsolved, and so that's what we'll keep working on. Dr. Afian, you need to expand to the frontier economies of this world. It's easy to bring mode RNA to America, to Europe, et cetera. Do you have to bring the fanciness of the present vaccines to Africa or do you have to find a different process, a different technology? I don't think you need a different technology. And as you may be aware, we just announced today the, the uh, commitment uh, by Moderna to establish the first ever mRNA manufacturing plant of drug substance, as well as the full finished product. Um, we, will, we will select the location in the continent of Africa over the coming months uh, through discussions that are ongoing. But we announced today that we plan to have production capacity of up to 500 million doses of our vaccines, multiple different vaccines that we have under development, as well as, of course, as needed for COVID. And that will involve an investment of uh, up to $500 million is what we're forcing right now. So that's one approach. But I should say the technology, uh, you know, the word fancy, of course, could also mean so sophisticated so as to be pretty simple. This is an information molecule. Everything else that's been used for vaccines before have been dramatically more complex than this. This is a pure information molecule. Yeah. And if you get it safely administered, our cells know what to do with it. They make the antigen that's needed to cause the immune system to attack any kind of threat, including the respiratory yeah. viruses that we're going after. So, so I think the technology is actually lends itself to deployment globally. Dr. Afayad, I'm looking at your shares. Moderna share is up more than 890% since the end of March last year. There's been a huge surge of money into the pharmaceutical industry on the heels of the mRNA advancements and also because there does seem to suddenly be more money for vaccines. How much is this going to be consistent that more money will continually be deployed to vaccine development at a time when traditionally this has really seen a dearth of investment? Well, uh, you're making a good observation in that remarkably the most effective pharmaceutical company, which is actually our own immune system that we carry around with us every single day, it's saved more lives, it's fought back more viruses, and it's within us. And yet, historically, we've had no real access to being able to use it uh, on our behalf. And so occasionally, people have developed vaccines uh, over decades of work, and that's why it's been the backwaters of the pharma industry. I'm very pleased to see that people have seen a proof of concept of what vaccines can do. They're innately powerful if you know how to control them. And so I think that that money is not just kind of following a short-term opportunity, but recognizes a, 
a real shift in what's possible and how effective our immune system can be. I should also say, though, that another phenomenon is driving, the, the, I think, the capital. That has to do with a shift in this industry from being a rather probabilistic shots on goal, we call it in the industry, uh, kind of almost lottery where you bet on a lot of different drugs and maybe one or two out of a 50 make it, versus a gradually more deterministic activity. By that, I don't mean that everything we do will work, but that we should expect many things, if not most, to work. And it's just a question of iterating and learning and making better and better products. That has not been the investment thesis of the pharmaceutical industry. And so I think we're beginning stages of where this begins to look more like tech and less like this complicated speculative activity that biotech has been for 35 years I've been in it. Interesting. Mr. Afian, it's great to catch up. Let's continue this conversation another time. Moderna's Nuba Afian there, weighing in on how much that industry is set to change. She is absolutely exquisite at the microeconomics, the microdynamics, the price theory of hydrocarbons. Emery Desen joins us from Energy Aspects. We tried for three days, I think, to get her on the show. We're thrilled she could join us uh, this morning. Emery, when you look at the Marshallian cross of demand and supply, what's the single thing our listeners, our viewers need to know? What's the dynamics of oil price and supply demand right now? Well, you flatter me, Tom, firstly, but I'll say this much, that look, inventories around the world are extremely low everywhere. And that is ultimately the reason because supply just isn't keeping up with demand. Yes, OPEC has spare capacity, but it is choosing to bring back production slowly because there are a lot of uncertainties going into the Northern Hemisphere winter. We don't know whether there's going to be COVID flare-ups. So fair enough, they're being cautious, but inventories right. everywhere, crude particularly, but even products, very, very low. When you look at inventory dynamics and your guesstimates, your forecasts, how far out does a pro like you look, given what you just said? Are you trying to guess out a week or a month, a quarter? How, what's the, the length of the guess right now, given these growing demand? Well, we do it all the way through to the end of next year. So we try and at least have a 12 to 18 month period for the short term outlook. But of course, you know, it does become less and less certain the further out you go. For the next three months, we can be a lot more certain, you know, given all the kind of high frequency data that we are looking at. And Rita, we had two pieces of verbal intervention yesterday, one from the Russian president and another from the energy secretary here in the United States, Secretary Granholm. Out of those two, which one or both are actually credible statements? What if I say neither? <laughs> but honestly, I think, uh, jokes apart, the, the, the reality is what we've seen from the White House in particular is that they're not talking about an SPR release uh, as an imminent policy tool. This was a question asked, and the answer was that, yes, of course, all options are on the table. OPEC says that to us all the time. All options are on the table. The, the key to remember is that the Biden administration is very, very keen to have low gasoline prices for consumers. So we should always keep that in mind. And if prices continue to go up and overheat, then yes, they will be putting more pressure on OPEC. And yes, then SPR can become a tool. With regards to gas uh, and, and what Putin said, you know, the reality is that Russian gas inventories are low. Even if they wanted to increase uh, exports, they have to refill inventories themselves. And that's why Europe, European gas prices are so, so high. Again, stocks are very, very low in Europe. So frame winter for me, Amrita. I'm trying to understand how tethered the oil story is to what happens with gas, given we're having a bigger conversation about substitution now. 
What does that look like for you through a cold winter in Europe? I think if it's a cold winter, um, we just have to be prepared for very, very high gas and oil prices. To your point, I mean, yes, there's substitution. In Europe, it's actually very small because there are a lot of environmental restrictions. Uh, the place to look out for will be actually in the U.S. and particularly on the East Coast. You can get more heating oil burn. Even in Asia, Japan can burn more fuel oil. So that will, again, push up prices. So gas and oil kind of pull each other up. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, this is a fallout of energy transition. The policies of Western policymakers where you've retired coal-fired plants before demand has come off. So we are going to be in this era of kind of high fossil fossil fuel or high energy prices uh, till demand for fossil fuel comes off. And that's going to be, that's still years away. Well, Amrita, that's exactly where I wanted to go. What is the correct broader narrative to view the recent increases in oil prices? Is it what you were just talking about, the idea of uh, the fallout from the mismatches here in energy policy and a stagflationary-like type trend? Or is it recovery, the fact that demand is increasing at a time uh, that seems to be faster than supplies can come back online? I mean, of course, it's a combination of both and the latter point that you're making. I mean, you can't ignore that. Yes, there's a lot of pent up demand after COVID. And if anything, in a way, COVID's kind of brought more demand to the market because people just want to go get on and, and you know, whether it be driving or flying. But the underlying narrative is absolutely about energy transition and the choices policymakers will have to make because these are very stark choices that potentially need to be made as soon as this winter. Are you going to have rolling blackouts? Are you going to yeah. sacrifice economic growth? And this is something, you know, we have been talking about for a while. There is no investment in oil. That's why this is a structural move higher in oil prices. This is a structural move higher in gas prices. Not saying gas will stay here. It will come off, but it will still remain much higher than it has been for the last 10 years. Amrita, thank you for weighing in. And great to catch up as always. Stay close. Amrita Sen there of Energy Aspects. Right now, Sarah House helps us with the jobs report. Wells Fargo Securities, and of course, all of this back to the tradition of the great John Sylvia, they go deeper. Sarah House, you and your team have looked at this pandemic, our labor dynamics, and women. How are women doing within the pandemic and within the jobs reports we see tomorrow? So women are, are still lagging behind in terms of the labor market recovery. So particularly when it comes to mothers, just given the childcare considerations that women and parents generally have had to contend with, but you know, we've seen it disproportionately on, on women. So for example, the labor force participation rate of mothers has declined about five times the amount as, as we've seen for men. So I think as we head into the fall though, we have seen some of those burdens and begin to ease. And so I think when we look ahead, we are expecting to see some improvements in the labor supply. I think there's been a lot of hype around September and just the calendar turning there between schools being back and the unemployment insurance benefits ending in, in all states. And I think you'll see some incremental improvement, but these are dynamics and, and issues mm -hmm. that are going to take months to play out. Let's go back to your work at London School of Economics on development. Let's look at national development within 3.5 trillion, whatever the number is going to be of social programs forward is some form of U.S. European-like childcare the most productive way to get more women employed? 
I think it could certainly help. So we've seen labor force participation among women in the U.S. We used to lead the pack back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and we've just continued to follow behind. And it's because we haven't made a lot of those investments in, in child care. So if you look at the labor force participation rate among women with children under, under the age of six, it's about 10 percentage points lower than school-age children, which I think really speaks to the importance of a more robust child care system in allowing uh, women and you know basically a, a large share of your population to to work and contribute to the overall economy. In the meantime, Sarah, we've seen that participation rate just broadly continue to remain far below where it was pre-pandemic. How do you look at this rate to determine the tightness of the labor market, considering that some of these people may never come back to the labor market? Well, I think it's still a big question in, in terms of what extent workers do come back. So you, I think some of the issues that are keeping workers on the sideline are more temporary in nature. I think, you know, some of the, the child care issues related to at least those parents of school-aged children where they were having to guide their children through remote learning, perhaps not fully sure how consistently they'll be back in, in the classroom this fall. But I think there's questions over, okay, to what extent is this permanent? You know, we've seen substantial retirements. If you look at labor force participation across age, it's recovered about half its loss for, for prime age workers, but it, it hasn't gone anywhere for your, your older workers. So those 65 or older. And so I think we've seen um, some permanent loss of of labor of labor supply, um, although I still think there's there's still a, a decent amount of, of latent supply on the sidelines that can can come into the labor market over the next year. John, this is one of the most confusing aspects to me out there. The idea that we don't have a sense of how many people are going to return, how many people have retired, who yeah. has found a new job, what these frictions are. I mean, some of the mysteries underpinning the labor market. How much slack is there? How tight is this labor market? How loose is it? I've got no idea. Let's make it very simple, Sarah. Big question for this market into tomorrow. How low is the bar for the Fed to execute in early November? How low is it? I think Powell set the bar fairly low. So in his press conference coming out of the last FOMC meeting, all he said, they only need to see a reasonably good report. It does not need to be a knockout. So what could be reasonably good? I think probably anywhere around 350 or, or higher would tick that box. So that's still well above even the, the best year that we saw over the last cycle where the the run rate um, in that best year was about 260,000. And so I think given that you have seen directionally some improvement when it comes to the health situation, again, some of these supply constraints easing, I think we, we should see the, the payroll report tomorrow clear that bar. Sarah, thank you. Sarah House there of Wells Fargo Securities weighing in on the labor market report and what it means for this Fed. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.